it is quite likely that Jews for Jesus, more than any other organization in the world, is more responsible for gayers, for Christians converting to Judaism, than any other because they ignite the messianic movement that we abhor actually elicits, ignites within the non-Jew, the evangelical, a curiosity about Judaism that they otherwise would not have. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. In the most recent episode of The Orthodox Conundrum, I talked about the crazy case of Michael L. Cohen with Amanda Bradley, who was a close friend of his late wife. Michael L. Cohen is a Christian missionary who was masquerading as a Haredi rabbi, sofer, mohel, Kabbalist, and even Kohen. In fact, he wasn't even Jewish at all, and neither was his wife. His actual last name was Elk, not El Cohen. For more details about the story, I suggest listening to that episode. The question still remains about the damage that Michael Elk actually did. After all, Orthodox Jews might be a prime target of missionaries, but the success rate the missionaries have with Orthodox Jews is likely lower there than in other sectors of the Jewish population. So is Michael Elk and the other imposters like him, yes, they're out there, actually dangerous? To find out the answer to this and other related questions, I was honored to speak with Rabbi Tovia Singer, the founder and director of Outreach Judaism. Before we get to the interview, let me remind you to please subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join and participate in the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Also go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the Orthodox Conundrum. Just search for the Orthodox Conundrum, give it between zero and five stars, I hope five, and write a sentence or two. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are available only to subscribers. We're adding new features to Patreon all the time, including, coming up very soon, AMA, Ask Me Anything. You'll also be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, halakhically committed, and honest orthodoxy. So make sure you sign up to Patreon right away. It's just a few bucks a month, and you can cancel at any time. We're looking forward to your joining our team on Jewish Coffeehouse. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast and Jewish Coffeehouse can help you start. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in a single day, or alternatively, record, relax, and let us do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work for you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. Rabbi Tovia Singer is well known as the founder and director of Outreach Judaism, an international organization dedicated to countering the efforts of fundamentalist Christian groups and cults who specifically target Jews for conversion. A world-renowned public speaker, Rabbi Singer's YouTube videos have been seen by millions of people. He is the author of the book, Let's Get Biblical, Why Doesn't Judaism Accept the Christian Messiah, and is a frequent guest on TV and radio shows. Rabbi Tovia Singer, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. 
Thank you for having me. I spoke about Michael Elk or Michael L. Cohen, as he called himself or calls himself, when I talked to Amanda Bradley in our last episode. And much of what I'm going to ask you today is by definition and by necessity going to be speculation because I have no idea what he's thinking. Perhaps you know more about what he's thinking than I do. But I'm sure based on your real experience in the area of dealing with Christian missionaries, you have a lot to say about this particular story. Listeners who haven't yet heard should go back to that previous episode to find out the actual facts of the case. I really would like to hear what you think was his goal. What was this guy and his family's goal in trying to integrate into the Orthodox community in Yerushalayim? So as it turns out, what he did is what hundreds of thousands of messianics are doing. The only thing is he amped it up. It's an issue of volume. It's an issue of quantity, not quality. It's, it's not a, an issue of kind. And I need to explain this. So you, the viewer, need to understand what is happening here and what's really been going on now for, for the last 50 years or so. In the early 1970s, evangelical Christians realized that they had to change the way Jews were converted to Christianity. In 1972, five years after Jerusalem was liberated, that sent a shockwave not only through the Jewish world but through the evangelical Christian world. Fundamentalist Christians who are very pro-Israel believed that Jerusalem's liberation meant that Jesus was going to make a second coming. And one other part had to happen in that is the Jews had to believe in Jesus. Christians believe, especially this iteration of evangelical Christians, and these are the Christians that typically we like, they're the pro-Israel kind, they believe, based on a passage in the book of Matthew, that in order for Jesus to make that second coming, the Jews have to accept him as their Messiah. They have to, in mass, have to be converted. And they recognized that there were a number of problems in evangelizing Jews. In fact, the Jews were the most difficult people to evangelize throughout history. And they realized that, number one, Jewish people see, view, believing in Jesus and converting to Christianity as divorcing themselves from their Jewish ancestry, that they're no longer Jewish because they become a Christian. So the idea was developed to address that and say, when you're believing in Jesus, Yeshua, you're not converting to another religion. You're becoming a a Messianic Jew, a completed Jew. You'll hear from Messianic Jews very often, people who've gotten involved in this, is I've learned more about my Jewishness since I've accepted Jesus than ever before. And then what they then do is they then wear the garb of religious shoes, very typically will wear a kippah. They frequently wear tzitzit, although typically they'll wear it connected to their belt loops. The idea is that I haven't converted to another religion. I have, in fact, become more Jewish, more committed to my Jewishness. Now, what's happened with Elk is unusual. It's unusual on many levels, but the point that needs to be addressed is very, very clear. And that is, if you could say, look, you could believe in Jesus and you are, you could be a rabbi, you could infiltrate the Jewish community, you can make it possible for others to uh, volunteers to come in to evangelize Jews, if you can infiltrate the Jewish community. So this is not just a problem in Nachlot or French Hill in Jerusalem. 
This is a problem in Houston where Jews who have become Christians call themselves Messianic, dress like Orthodox Jews, and try to join the Jewish Community Center. There, Dallas, Philadelphia. This is a problem that Jewish communities worldwide have been ripping their hair out over, and that's what Michael has done. Michael, as it turns out, amped it up because he's not Jewish at all, zero. Right. right. So that's really— Nothing. Nothing. And But here's the crazy thing. So here's the wild thing. I mean, there are a lot of crazy it, things about this story. There's so many. It's hard to know where to begin. But here's the big one, and your viewers are going to get this. And that is that if you go to a Messianic conference, and I've gone to a lot of them, what do you mean? So thousands of Messianics gather for a convention where they have classes and sessions and so on, and you feel you see a whole bunch of characters walking around as Orthodox Jews, and then you see a few of them who are wearing like a completely what we call the Shemayin Bugadim. They they wear they look like Haredim out of Meisharim, like the the people out of Gula or something. So those people you can almost be sure are not Jewish at all because they're dafka overcompensating for the fact they're not Jewish. The people who are really born Jewish typically don't need to overcompensate the way Michael Elk did. So usually it's very strange. You walk over to one of them and introduce yourself, and the guy talks like he's a truck driver from Louisiana. And but he looks like a guy from Meisharim. He looks like a guy from Meisharim, but he talks like, like a truck driver from Alabama. <laughs> exactly. So it's, it's very, very strange. So the Messianic movement has gone very, very far to gain Jewish converts in any way you can infiltrate the community is essential. I need to explain more. Please. There are two rules about Jewish evangelism you don't want to forget. And rule number one is that in virtually all cases, the person who succeeds in converting a Jew to Christianity is a Gentile evangelical Christian, not a Jew who's already converted. It's quite possible that you know of somebody personally that got involved in one of these groups. And if you ask that cousin of yours or your friend's daughter, tell me who is the first person to contact you that you connected with, who is the first person to witness to you, I can almost assure you it will be someone who is never Jewish. The people who actually are Jewish by birth are rarely capable of converting another Jew. Jews, no matter what stripe, whether they're affiliated, not affiliated, whatever denomination, are alienated by Jews for Jesus, by Jews who have become Christians. But we're very comfortable with non-Jews who are Christians, and therefore those are the people that we can that, that we can forge a relationship with in the workplace, at school, and so on. I see. You understand how this works? It's all very counterintuitive, yeah. and that's why so many people are having so much trouble understanding this. We have to unpack this. This is 40 years of doing this. So if I could just ask on that one point, when you say that Michael yeah. Elk not being Jewish— it sounds like you're saying that's almost the point, that somebody who's not Jewish is more likely to succeed in infiltrating the community and successfully convincing some Jews to convert. That was almost that's by right. design. Is that what you're saying? Right. Oh, yeah. Uh, look, Michael Elk you know, is a, one of these guys who, who likes to—I mean, this is his personality from the people— who knew him personally, the people who worked out with him in the gym, the people who worked out with him in his jujitsu training and so on, all describe him in the same way, that he wanted to be the best. He wanted that blue belt, whatever it's called. He wanted the next level, jujitsu level, even though some people didn't think he really deserved it. 
and he wanted it, and the people running the show knew that he was a he was a prize, and he was treated like a you know, like a prima donna. Mm-hmm. But he wanted that kind. He's he's one of those people that. If you were in his circle, you better get along with him because he wanted to be the center of attention. I mean, there there are things about these characters that go on. It's not germane to us, but okay. Michael is obviously, you know, he wanted to be the sofer and he wanted to be the mohel and he wanted to be the Kabbalist and he wanted to the 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 missionaries from Morning Star Ministries, big, big station, huge missionary group. You know, they would fawn all over him as an Orthodox Jew. So he wanted the non-Jewish evangelical Christians to fawn all over him. That was very important. And moreover, they didn't know his secret. That means no one, they weren't in on they it. They thought he was Jewish. I mean, yeah. They thought, look, I can't read their mind, but you could be sure these people were very proud to be supporting in every way an Orthodox Jew, who's an Orthodox rabbi who's come to believe in Yeshua as the Messiah. And you can watch it. I've shown the videos where they're literally fawning all over him, drooling on him. <laughs> so he, I mean, that, I mean, to them, this was like, you know, and that's why. There's mana from heaven sh- for them. Oh, this is like, this is what they fantasize about. I mean, this is like, so, I mean, you're asking very good questions. I'll just, I, I need to do this one thing with you. This bothers the evangelical Christians a lot. Their claim is that the truth and proof of Christianity could be demonstrated, the veracity of the Christian claim could be demonstrated from your Jewish Bible, from Tanakh, from the Hebrew Scriptures, your very own Torah, Jesus bouncing off every page. Now, if this were the case, if in fact the truth of Christianity could be illustrated from Jewish sacred Scriptures, why is it that the Jews who know most about the Jewish Bible, Orthodox Jews, are the ones who are least likely to get involved in Christianity, and those Jews who know nothing about the faith they've been asked to abandon are the ones most likely to join the ranks of Jews for Jesus. This should be, if what Jews for Jesus is claiming has and bears any resemblance to truth, there should be some sort of correlation between the more you know about that Jewish Bible, the more likely you are to believe in Jesus, if in fact he is. But it's just the reverse. The Jews who know most are least likely. Now, here's the rub, which very few people have thought of, but I'm sure you have spent a considerable amount of time speaking to people who are gayrim, gayrate tzedek, people who are righteous converts to the Jewish faith, and almost all of them are former Christians. There are some Hindus, former Hindus, but not many. They're not many former Buddhists. They're mostly former Christians. And if you ask them, tell me, ask, you know this woman, she... Tell me, when you were a Christian, what kind of Christian were you? I can almost assure you that she was a former evangelical Christian, a former Bible-thumping Christian, the most knowledgeable Christians, and it's the former pastors that are converting to Judaism. So notice the difference in how this works. The Jews who become joined Christianity are Jews who knew nothing, so their conversion doesn't demonstrate anything because they know nothing. Conversely, the Christians, by and large, the people who are in the conversion programs here in Israel, not all, but the vast, vast majority of them, are former evangelical fundamentalist Protestant Christians who themselves were involved in the Messianic movement in some way. And because they were involved in the Messianic movement, it triggered, it ignited a curiosity 
within them about the Jewish faith, which ignited their interest in converting to Judaism. I'm going to say this, and it's going to make the viewers nuts, (laughs) but it is quite likely that Jews for Jesus, more than any other organization in the world, is more responsible for Gairus, for Christians converting to Judaism, than any other because they ignite the messianic movement that we abhor actually elicits, ignites within the non-Jew, the evangelical, a curiosity about Judaism that they otherwise would not have. Are you being? Are you exaggerating, or is this? Are you no, being authentic? No, that's a, no, no. This is. So I, I'm sure you know people who have converted to Judaism who are former Christians. I'm sure you do. Yes. Right. Yeah. Ask them. Test it out. I mean, now, is it some of them former Roman Catholics? Yes, not many. And remember, the Roman Catholic Church is by far the largest denomination in the world. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church is larger than every other Christian denomination if you add it up. So if knowing the Bible had anything to do with it, you should have a lot of Roman Catholics, except Roman Catholics don't study their Bible. That's the thing. It's the evangelical Protestants that do. So why are they the ones who are most likely to convert? Right, it's the solar scripture idea. Yeah, it's the scripture guys. It's the people who are the Bible thumpers. Those are the people who are lining up to convert or become B'nai Noach. I mean, everybody knows about this phenomenon. I'm not like revealing some hidden secret. This is the worst kept secret in the world. The Messianic movement has triggered, you know, know, it's like Utsuets of Vesufa. You know, our enemies come up, hatch a plot against us to destroy us. But ultimately, don't be afraid. Why, Kiyamonu Kale? Because God is with us. Of Pusik in Isaiah chapter 8. That in fact, they hatch a plan to destroy us, and that plan ultimately results in enormous conversion to Judaism. And they're responsible for it. Go to the rabbis who are running conversion programs here in Israel and speak to the people who are in the programs who spend two years and ask them what religion they come from. You're not going to find former Hindus and Catholics. You're not going to find any. Not many. It's mostly from evangelical Christianity. So that's the that's a strange thing here. So that's why they fawned over Michael. I want to ask about the rules you said. You said there are two rules that everyone has to know. The first one is that if somebody is convinced to convert to Christianity, it almost always is done by a Christian and not by a Jew or a Messianic Jew. By by a person who was never Jewish. Right. That's correct. What is the second rule? Oh, the second rule is not going to be a professional missionary. It's not going to be someone who worked for Jews for Jesus, chosen people ministries, friends of Israel gospel ministries, first fruits of Zion. This country is loaded. It's like a cancer stage four in this country. It's not going to be the people, and I need you, the listener, to get this straight. It is not the professional missionaries that actually do the conversion. They'd like to. They just don't. They have to create, especially in this country, a plausible deniability what people like Michael L. Cohen, all, the, the, all these guys are doing is they're bringing evangelical volunteers. They arrange for it. They're bringing fundamentalist Christians from the Bible Belt, from Iowa, from all over to come here to work, get jobs, volunteer, and then interact with the Jewish community. They direct traffic. And it's these lay 
Gentile, not professional missionaries, who are then trained by these people at First Fruits of Zion, who are trained by Friends of Israel Gospel Ministries, who are trained by Chosen People Ministries, to go out then and witness to their Jewish friends and so on. So it all, that's how the, that's how the whole scheme works. So you're saying that Michael L. Cohen, he himself was not trying to convert Jews per se directly, which is what we've heard so far. I guess he was playing the long game, but you're actually saying it's not even that. He was more, as Amanda Bradley suggested, almost a spy infiltrating the community and bringing other people in who actually would do the process. Is that what you mean? Yes, this is the mo- the gravest danger. Now, of course, the people that he has converted to Christianity, and I'm just saying that he has, I, you know, I'm just saying, they're not going to come to me and say, hey, Rabbi Singer, I just want you to know that Michael L. Cohen just converted me, so that I'm never going to get that phone call, you understand? So, But he would have been very stupid to blow a cover that he worked on for so many years over one person that he could possibly evangelize. He did many other things. He ran a whole messianic yeshiva where he was ordaining messianic rabbis and the the stuff is coming out now more than, you know, writing Gairus things so that people could convert to messianic Judaism and with the hope that that Gairus could be accepted by the Jewish agency. He, he and uh, th- that whole gang, the Timothy Buckles, that whole gang involved in making up a story. I mean, this is the kind of thing that Buckles and all these guys will be involved in, that Rav Kaduri, the great Zechrein Levrach, a, a giant, uh, a great, I mean, uh, one of the icons, uh, we lost him not that long ago, that he wrote a letter to be read a year after he died. And in the letter, the Rashi Tevis, the the, the first letter of each word spells out Yeshua. Rav Kaduri was a, a fierce opponent of Christian missionaries and Christianity in general. And this is a disgusting thing that he did. Now, I respond to this in video. On, I have a very large YouTube channel where I exposed that the whole thing was nonsense and it was didn't come from him. But these are the guys. That's why Kaduri looms so large in the ether, in the background, in the white noise behind buckles, behind elk. Well, it's all Kaduri. Why? Because these are the guys who promoted that, and that did a lot of damage. Jews for Jesus ran with that. When I came out with a YouTube video exposing it, TBN, they and Morning Star, they did shows attacking me on national Christian things. Let's just explain uh, to our listeners what you're speaking about. I think there's a letter that was purported to be written by Rav Kaduri to be opened a year after he died. And I right. believe the Roche Tevot of this letter come out to something like Yehoshua, which they then said means really Jesus, and therefore they're right. trying to claim that Rav Kaduri was therefore exposing himself, Chasfajalam, as a secret Christian who was trying to convince people that Jesus was Messiah. Is that the that story? Is, Do I have it correctly? No, you got it right down. So, yeah, so the text literally reads, Yerom Ha'om so, which means literally that um, he'll raise his people and and he will establish, confirm that his words, his teachings are stand, are established. So if you take the first letter of each word, yud, hey, you know, vav, shin, vav, ayin, you have Yeshua, and that's Jesus. <laughs> that, 
Well, well here's my question, though. Is, is it scam? possible Rav Kudu rewrote the letter was referring to... No, 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 no. I was chayk of a day. Okay. That's a nonsense. Obviously, I I'm not suggesting that he means that Jesus is the Mashiach, but what, he might have been saying the name is Yoshua for some other person. No, no, no. Right, right. I mean, Yoshua means salvation, and we sing those words at Havdalah, which actually come from the book of Isaiah, so it really is illustrious words, but... The fake Messiah David Koresh from Waco, Texas, also had an illustrious name, David. Doesn't mean he was the Mashiach <laughs> right. and got killed. But Rav Kudori did not write the letter at all, you're saying? It was actually. No, no, no. That yeah. is completely fake, completely made up, and it is this group that did it. Now, it turns out that El Cohen, in quotation marks, blames Buckles. They don't like each other, by the way. They don't get along with each other, which is one of the things that saves us, is that these messianic groups do not get along with each other. These messianic groups fight with each other routinely, and they start out together. It means Buckles and El Cohen and all these guys worked out together. Buckles was initially his like his, a student of his and built the messianic congregation for him in Seattle. But eventually, Buckles, who's a part of First Fruits of Zion, um, had a falling out. Out they see this competition and they fiercely break up with each other, and that helps us very often. When they're going at it with each other, they each try to expose each other. It really goes that far. And so this is important for the viewer to understand. And that is that there is no money in Israel for Jewish evangelism. Every mission in Israel to convert the Jews um, has to raise their funds from North America, Europe, South Korea, and so on. And there's hundreds of millions of dollars that are allocated, that are earmarked for Jewish evangelism by the Southern Baptist Convention, Vichula, and so on. Now the question is, who gets the money? So each one is competing with the other to show that they're doing this and, and to try to undermine the other, putting out videos. This has been very helpful in exposing it. All these missionary groups have to get on video on television and talk about how they bring Jewish people to Yeshua, to them, to Jesus. And that's how God TV came down because Ward Simpson, that we, God forbid if that station would have ever made it, he had to say, I'm going to convert 9 million Jews to Christianity. Hmm. They don't use that term, bring 9 million Jews to know about Yeshua. The words have changed, but ontologically, there's no difference in the Messianic movement and, and evangelical Christianity. And it's not our only source. Thank God we have many different sources inside, outside, many different sources working. But a big source of information is when they go into churches, when they go on Christian television and talk about their work in order to raise money, in order to have that money funneled to their work, that information then could be seized and used to expose it to the Jewish community. The most important thing is that education. I mean, that's the only way to respond to this, is to educate the Jewish public, not only in America, but even worse in Israel. Israelis know less about Christianity than Americans do. You know that. Right. Yeah, I mean, of course. It's weird. But Israelis really don't... I mean, Americans grow up in a Christian country, so like Christianity is around them. Right. It's ubiquitous. But, it's in the air. So it, Israeli, right, it's all over the place, you know. You know, mommy, why does, you know, who's that guy? On the, you know, you find out when you're a kid that Christmas and all. Here, you know, I, this past 
Christmas. I didn't even know it was Christmas because there was no nothing going on. It was, right. it was my mother talks I, about I when I was three years old in Boston, going to the mall and seeing a guy with a long white beard and a big red suit and asking who that was. <laughs> like, right, right. I'm quite aware that Santa Claus is not an actual theological concept in Christianity. I just mean that Christian symbolism and Christian ideas and Christian holidays fill the atmosphere in a place like the United States in a way that is not true in Israel. Israelis don't know, and this is a big effect. This is a big effect also on the rabbis here. And that is that they're, this I feel sorry for them, and that is that the rabbis who are doing geras here just don't know enough to ask, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Yeshua? And in a way, even though the, the conversion process here tends to be more rigorous than most other places, the rabbis here, because they don't have an exposure to Christianity, most don't at all, they don't even know what to ask. And sometimes people can, can make it through, and many have. You've already answered this question in part, but I actually want to hear it more explicitly because it relates to something which a good friend of mine mentioned. He suggests, and I think you just said it yourself that it's true, that the toughest targets for missionaries are Orthodox Jews. There are many others, unfortunately, who are much more susceptible to that message, but Orthodox Jews are not generally among them. Because of this, this person suggested, the Michael Elk saga it causes halakhic chaos. You know, he's giving a bris mila to people and he's not Jewish. He pretended he's a Kohen and doing probably pidyon ben. He said it's halakhically chaotic, but it's not actually dangerous. I want to hear your response to that. The person is conveying something that has some truth, but that's where the danger is. It's a little bit of truth. How, how did I come to make Aliyah two years ago? I was the rabbi in Indonesia helping Jews in the church come out there. I came to Israel in 2018 to debate a Christian missionary at the King Solomon Hotel, which drew, I don't know, 800 people. It's big. You can watch it on YouTube. After the debate was done, it was, it was big. People were bringing over their friends to me. Some of them were Orthodox Jews. Some of them were complete Haredim who got involved in this. Really? I, oh, yes, very rarely. That means you had a girl taking another girl by the hand, very shy, bring her to me. And you can imagine after the debate, there was crowds around me. My Yiddish at the time, it was better than my modern conversational Hebrew. I could speak to them in Yiddish okay. Okay, very easily. And when I saw that, that would just blew my mind away. Now, it's, this is not a new thing. We had a few girls in Satma converted to Christianity. There's actually a YouTube video of a girl from Satma from Williamsburg who on video was baptized into Christianity, dipped into the pool, announcing her name. This is a problem. It's a problem. Now, there are, so here is the correct way to say this. The more you know about the Jewish faith and Orthodox Jews are, are far more knowledgeable than Jewish kids who are going to Hebrew school and getting two hours of Jewish education a week at best. That's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're much less susceptible because they know too much. But as it turns out, what is required is trauma. The Jews who are in the from world who are going through a tremendous trauma in their lives, a tremendous falling out, something very broken happens. I, I don't need to, I don't think you need a big imagination for this, where they feel completely let down by the community. And this causes a tremendous vulnerability. And at that right moment, 
at that exact moment, there's the Christian who's there, the Messianic who's there for them, and they become close friends. And they feel completely, these are people who feel betrayed by their own community, that the people, the leaders, the family members and friends, the people they looked up to, who they thought were, turned out completely betrayed. The people who were supposed to protect them betrayed them. In the Haredi world, that is very traumatic, and maybe more so in the Haredi world, because if you go into the Hasidic world, your Rebbe is like really very important. I mean, he's, a, he's really very important. And if your community cracks, then it's like everything comes crashing down, mm-hmm. even, more, even more so than someone who is in the national religious community. Because in a national religious community, so this person you don't care for, but all these other rabbis, you know it's... But when it's your rabbi, if it's your rabbi, the one who has Das Torah, who is the God's representative on earth. who is your rabbi, right. So then the the consequences are much more devastating for them. It's counterintuitive. So in every one of these cases that I've encountered, and unfortunately there are too many of them, there always is trauma. There's, there is no such thing... I have not encountered it, that someone is sitting and learning in bells and just happens to <laughs> walk into a missionary and the missionary opens his mouth and he says, okay, let's study And John that's what my friend was, re- was referring to, the guy sitting in yeshiva no, and bells. That's not what right. happened. Yeah, no, no, that's not, that's not what's happening. Now, in all cases, I don't know how deep you want to go, there is a therapeutic element. There's, there, there, this is where religion and therapy cross roads in a very violent way. Christianity at its core appeals to a person's low self-esteem. If you think about why people make very poor decisions in their lives, about who they marry, about just the worst mistakes people make, the worst decisions that you've made in your life, you can look back and go that probably my self-esteem at that moment was not where it should have been. And if my self-esteem was Probably, I, I probably wouldn't have done something so stupid. The Nevi'im, the prophets of Israel, say, you can do it, and I can forgive you. You, can, you have it. You're creating the image of God. Christianity addresses man's low self-esteem by feeding it, by nourishing it, by, by fueling it, by saying you are, in fact, the sinner, and you are, in fact, lost, and that, in fact, there's nothing you can do to save yourself because you were born in sin, you were conceived in iniquity, and you are stained with the original sin, and therefore only Jesus can save you. And the reason that you're suffering from depression, the reason why you feel like a sinner, the reason why you feel there's nothing you can do to satisfy God is because, in fact, there is nothing you can do to satisfy God, and that's why Jesus came. He died for your sins, and if only you would believe in him, you'd be saved. And if you don't, you will continue to be lost. So you you have to, in order to do what I do, and I I'm, I do exit counseling. I mean, I do everything. A big part of what I do is counsel mm-hmm. people out. This is always there. They, they're not in this because of Isaiah 7.14 and Daniel 9. What is in the recess, in the ether of the background is the pain the hurt, the scars of the past that are that have damaged that person's self-image. So if you look in the mirror and what you see is not attractive, if you look in the mirror and you don't see someone who's beautiful and your biggest critic is the person you see when you look in the mirror, then you're more vulnerable to the Christian message. So this gets, we're going into a dark place, but you're beginning to see how this is not a matter of just verses. And an Orthodox Jew knows more verses and therefore the Orthodox Jew is less vulnerable. 
There is certainly a, a correlation with that. Orthodox Jews also don't interact with Christians as much as Jews who are assimilated. Let's be frank about it. I don't want to insult anyone, but just just the way it is. So in every way, you're going to have the Orthodox community is going to grow less vulnerable to assimilation. But let's put that all aside. You have to understand what is going on. I've been doing this for just a really long time. What's going on, the dark place, and I rarely talk about this. I'm glad I will talk about this with you on air. The dark place is that the Christian doctrine of total depravity, the Christian doctrine of man is lost. This is raw Pauline theology expressed everywhere. <laughs> I was going to say Romans chapter 3, but it's really everywhere, is that man's condition is hopeless, man is born in a state of drowning, and therefore the only salvation is Jesus. Lahavdil, Judaism, is the opposite. You are created in the image of God. The default baseline is not that you're drowning and that you need a savior to save you. The default baseline is you're you're going to Yeah. And in order for a person to lose that, you have to do something. Something has to intervene in a wonderful system. And I'll just say, I know I'm going deep with you, but stop me if I go. No, this is good. All right. So stay with me because we're going to go real deep now. Please. We're going deep, very, very deep. If you've ever listened to the Christian testimonial of why did I become a Christian? So the testimonial almost always goes something like this. I used to be on drugs. I was drinking alcohol. I was a prostitute. I was on the streets. I was homeless. I was vomiting. I was this. I was, my whole life was shattered. I was shooting up heroin and so on. And I found Jesus. Okay? That's how the story goes. I was lost and then I'm found. There are actually Christian songs that are sung every, <laughs> every Sunday that go exactly. This is the, the whole thing. I mean, I was lost, yeah. now I'm found. You mean, literally, now, those yes, are the people who are susceptible yes. to the message. Mm, right, right. That's the test. So the testimonial is that I was drunk, I was doing terrible things in my life, I was, I was the worst person doing drugs and alcohol and so on, and that's when I found Jesus. Now, try this out for yourself. Ask a person who's converted to Judaism, so reverse that. Approach a Gerrit Tzedek, someone who is converted from Christianity to Judaism, from any religion to Judaism, and ask, why did you convert to Judaism? This is what you're never going to hear. You want to know why I converted to Judaism? Let's go, everybody. Gather around. Let me explain to you what happened. I was on the corner of 47th Street and 7th Avenue, and I was vomiting, and I was throwing my guts up, and I was high on heroin and drugs, and I found Moses. You're never going to hear that. <laughs> you don't hear about people becoming from in jail, like that sort of thing, where suddenly they, no, they convert no, to Judaism well, in jail. It's a joke. When, when people embrace Judaism, they're doing it at the highest level from the neck up. That means they're going, oh, I, I was a, a Bible-thumping Christian, really happy. But then I started studying about Judaism and then compared that to Christian, the New Testament. I realized that the New Testament was was completely antithetical to anything found in the Jewish Bible, and I found that Judaism had the truth. So I, I, I thought that I was a heroin addict. I'm not. These are 
You know, you're going, these are generalizations. Let right. me tell you something. There are no, almost no exceptions to this. There are one in a blue moon. It's not. This is the way it goes. Mm -hmm. The people who are converting to Judaism are people who are perfectly fine, and they're not, on, they're not people who are, who are using Judaism as a way to get off drugs. It's not that it never happened, but no, that tells you a lot. Judaism appeals to the neck up. Christianity appeals to that broken part of the body from the neck down that's just totally not connected to the to the mind and that's what happens so you ask how could a religious person get involved in it it ain't it isn't the verses it is in fact the state of mind and this is in fact how people make the worst most deplorable decisions in their life low self-esteem rabbi torsky wrote so many books and all Zerchayim Levrach, he passed away not long ago. He was a, one, a brilliant psychiatrist, sure. devoted his life to mental health. And he always said that he could sum up all of his books as really about self-esteem, and it really is. I mean, when it all comes down to it, I mean, it's, it's the way it is. It's people's self-image. And Christianity says, you're right. There's a good reason why you feel low. You are low. Jesus says, no, you're, you're creating the image of God. That's fascinating. I want to ask again about Michael Elk, going back to sure. his current situation. He apparently, at least according to rumors, is looking for a new community in which oh, yeah. to integrate himself. As best as you can speculate, why do you think he thinks he can do this again? It's been all over the place. Everybody knows about this now. What is he thinking? Well, I mean, look, any none of us could ever imagine doing what he did, like we would dress up like a priest. I mean, it's like weird. Right. So you're putting yourself at someone who, uh, who, who thinks very, very extreme. But he, people just don't understand how dedicated these, are, these people are to infiltrating another community. He has shaved his payas off. He's trimmed his beard, so now he looks – and he doesn't – where it keep he just looks like like a, just ordinary. He changes look completely. Uh, his kids are still in the school. It's really a very rough situation. The school is very worried about it, and he's looking to get into another community because by being in the Jewish community, he's able to continue to direct traffic. And he's able to garner support from the ministries that were funding him in the past. If he goes to America, he's nothing. If he goes to Ohio, he's nothing. Now, as it turns out, he's able to direct traffic. We have a big problem. I'm not going to go further into this, but we have a big problem with a lot of missionaries who are trying to penetrate the conversion process all over the place. We have like, that's all I could tell us. We got wanted right now. We're trying to find where these missionaries are trying to break through the system. And these are the guys who are directing traffic. So I think the way the viewers thought about this before the interview is that these are the people who are converting Jews. So they're not. They're the ones who direct traffic. And of course, they get money from all sides. Michael was getting money from both sides, from both the religious community in French Hill that was supporting him when right. his wife was tragically dying, and he was also, his wife gained, you know, I, a lot of people just love, loved Amanda. And this whole complication, she's buried in a Jewish cemetery in Harmanuchot. Right. And um, that leads to all sorts of problems. I mean, that actually raises another issue. What would you like if you were in charge and you could decide what happens? What do you think should happen to his kids right now? These are kids who are in Jewish schools. They're being raised as Jews, kind of, I guess. I mean, they're the innocent victims here. What what should be done? My, Michael, I can't answer that question directly because I haven't spoken to children. I, you know, I, I am a trained 
clinical social worker, but we have a rule that we don't diagnose people without actually meeting them. So I don't know where the kid's state of mind is, but, but Michael should be thrown in prison for what he did to those kids. I mean, I don't know their state of mind. I mean, I do know that w what triggered this whole release was his child evangelized another child right. in a Jewish school. I mean, we were thinking of different methods of how we were going to expose this and think about approaching him. There's all kinds of ways, but once that happened... You knew about Michael then, before the expose? You knew who he was? Of course. I was the one... Yeah, of course. I, I, we were, I was meeting with the rabbis on Zoom and coming up with strategies, how to expose this, whether we'd approach Michael, just all sorts of ways, options. There were five children involved. We obviously wanted to... There was caution. There was one also crazy thing about the L case. A lot, a lot of people were really, really loved Amanda, his wife. I mean, just people just could not wrap their brains around it to the point that people would come and there was there were people who came to me and say, look, I, I, I would t if I tell you about this rabbi and Sofer and Moel, who really is a missionary, will you expose him? And I would go, well, of course. And they'd go, well, I'm, I'm not ready to do that. And I would, thinking to myself, like, I know what's going on, but I'm thinking, oh, this is insane. And this went on in French Hill. Hmm. So people, the people knew that he was a missionary and people just uh, couldn't bring themselves to do this. So this was a very unique case on many levels. That I had never Wait, that, that like raises that. something I have to ask. How did they know he was a missionary? When I spoke to Amanda, Amanda Bradley, in my last episode, she said she had no idea whatsoever. She lives in Ramat Chemesh, but she said she had no inkling whatsoever that there was anything improper going on. How did people find out that Michael was actually a missionary? So Michael, as it turns out, I only knew, know about Michael, I'm just going to guess, for the last three months or so. Now, I knew there was a case in Seattle and something years ago because there were very famous incidences in the United States, in Philadelphia, in Chicago, in Seattle, in Denver, very famous cases where people infiltrated the Jewish community. They were exposed as missionaries. And then these people, we thought, went on to just disappear, would do what any person would do then and go right. just leave with their tail Get between out. their yeah. legs. But they don't. They come back for more. It's really mind-blowing. We're dealing with other – as we're talking, we're dealing with other cases right now, huge cases where people are exposed and they're coming back for more. It's really, really crazy. So the way it happened is just people just started to give me the information. As I said, I only knew about El Cohen for – I'm just saying three months. What are we in June? I don't, I don't know. Three months, two months, three and a half months. And then I did a show on it. I mean, people came to me, let me know about it. Um, what did these I, people see, I, though, that they told you about it? What did they notice about him? He was someone who was so integrated, who wasn't saying this publicly. I know that he had a child who mentioned Jesus, and that's how it so sort of he exploded. Was he, he was confronted in 2004 when he lived in Nachlot that he was a missionary. And Michael immediately said, I did tshuva. Now, those are very powerful words. And Michael knows how, how loaded that word is to a religious Jew who does not cherish the gift of repentance, mm -hmm. right? And, and people bought it, but with a curious eye, but people accepted it. 
Now, without ever questioning that he was actually not Jewish. That was the part they didn't even think of. No one knew that. That was not exposed until very recently when ultimately a um, an investigator opened up all this stuff. And we have investigated. We had genealogists. I mean, there is a whole team of people that work on these cases. Mm-hmm. What people don't get, what maybe makes me different than anybody else working on this is that I've been a counselor, an exit counselor for a very long time, about 40 years. So I know how it works. And people who were Christians, who leave Christianity, if you ask them, why did you join the Jewish faith? They will never say, I did tshuva. They just would never do that. Mm They would say, as I discovered that Jesus is not the Messiah, I, I discovered that the teachings of the New Testament were completely false. I mean, that's just, this is the way converts speak. Converts, in fact, sometimes are very, much more, anti, they're like former smokers, you know, they're, right. they're much more anti-Christian than other people are. And they sometimes speak about Christian in ways that other people go, hey, you, you, know, you could dial that down a little <laughs> right. bit because you're a little, a little over the top. So nobody says, oh, why did you become a Jew? I did tshuva. Nobody says that. That was a red flag already. Not to them. To other people don't know this because you'd have to be, this is all I do. Mm -hmm. I'm not like an electrician on the side. All I do is bring Jews out of the church, write books on it, and do really thousands of videos and that reaches millions of people. This is all I do and all I've done all my adult life. I don't do any anything else. Mm-hmm. So I know immediately, you know, if that's my specialty. I can recognize in a second. So I did tshuva. No, no one says I did tshuva. The only person who would say I do tshuva, did tshuva is the person who's trying to appeal to, to our sympathy and go, oh, you did tshuva. I guess he did tshuva. Then tshuva is a great And also thing. using our language. Yeah, well, he was in it. So whatever it was, he then moved on from Nachlot, and then he reestablished himself in French Hill. And then, you know, his wife was, Amanda was quite the personality, quite the social butterfly. Uh, He was involved in all kinds of, as a Kabbalist, he was like everything. He was the the Kabbalah man. He was the jujitsu man. He was the sofa man. He obviously must be a pretty good actor. People bought his act. Not that difficult, but he is very devoted. I mean, when he was an Eagle Scout, you know, when he was in the in the Boy Scouts, I I'm not a part of it. So I don't know anything about the Boy Scouts, but he was like a Eagle Scout. Like he had to be the top top Boy Scout, whatever that is. I never met him to my knowledge, but you know, everybody who knows him, he wants to be the center, and that's and why he was a Moel people, and a Kohen and right, a he wants to be. He's like, why? Why claim you're a Kohen? Because you're like amping up. You I mean you're making it because if you're a Kohen, that's much more easy to verify. Because you're a Kohen, that means you can't be a, a child of converse. You know, you can't. <laughs> your you, your mother can't be a convert because your father, who would be a Kohen, couldn't marry a, a convert. I mean, you're just making your story that much more difficult. So obviously, he was t- taking risk for the benefit of lending credibility uh, to his conversion. He gained some of the skills in a messianic congregation called Beth Yeshua in Philadelphia. Philadelphia. And he's from the Philadelphia area, I think, originally, like about 30 miles away from Philly. Philadelphia is home to a quarter of a million Jews. And it is just, it's really stage four cancer as far as the Messianic movement goes. And in fact, one of the major movements, the Messianic Jewish Lines of America, is centered 
in Philadelphia at a congregation called Beth Yeshua. Now, you've never heard of it, but Beth Yeshua, I don't even know today how many people they get on a Friday night, but I don't know. It could be a thousand people. Um, they're huge, huge. Really? And they do it really Jewish. And they strangely have a lot of Jews that attend. And just a fast explanation most Messianic congregations, the majority of people who attend are non Jews, not Jews. Jews who convert typically go to churches, they don't go to Messianic congregations. But Beth Yeshua is an exception. It's a, a congregation that's controlled by the Chernow family. And this is a guy who converted to Christianity. I'm not sure. I maybe probably in the fifties. I'm getting old time early days of this stuff. He, the early days, and he was like right there at the beginning of the messianic movement. That means changing. They used to call themselves Hebrew Christians, and they actually had terms like the Hebrew Christian Alliance. But that doesn't fly, Hebrew Christian people. Are not, Jews are not going to be attracted to that. So when the messianic movement started, the elder Chernoff was right there at the get-go, and he was right on board. So that messianic congregation is like, mommy literally is run like a shul, and is very, I mean, they really do it up. They make it very Jewish. Davening, reading from a Torah. Right. Like, whereas other congregations, they'll play fiddler on the roof music, and uh-huh. but they really amp it up. Mm-hmm. And that's where he, no doubt, he, he honed some of his skills. I see. Just as a final question, one thing which came out when I was discussing this issue with Amanda was the fear of who else is among us that is doing this kind of thing. I don't really believe that every other neighbor on my street all of a sudden is a Christian. I got to suspect them. But I think a lot of people are wondering, do I have to look under every rock to find out who really is influencing my kids or who is hiding around the corner in plain sight in my shul in my school who actually might have some sort of Christian ulterior motive, the fact that Michael Elk was exposed then led to, as you mentioned before, two other families being exposed as well. And you say there are many others. What should authentic Orthodox Jews be concerned about and what should they do about it? In Israel, people who are involved in conversion and involved in Kirov have to just be aware of what to look for. I'm aware of many, many, many more Orthodox, in quotation marks, Orthodox Jews who are Messianic, as we speak right now. And they're actually non-Jews. One of them is not Jewish. One of them, I'm just going off the top of my head, mother converted to Judaism and totally faked it, meaning believed in Jesus the whole time, Mm -hmm. God of conversion, made Aliyah, and her daughter is right here in Jerusalem and is totally Messianic, and is... People have no clue. Uh, now, what you have to do in all these cases is you, you're trying to build up as much information as what exactly are they doing. There are roughly, we don't know this number for sure, but eh, roughly 20,000 Israelis, Israelis that are messianic, that are part of this movement. This is not a small thing. This is a very significant problem. I have the mailing list of many Messianic congregations here in Israel. I mean, that's not that difficult for— Israeli Messianic congregations. Oh, yeah, because I get these Jews out of the church. So many of them will give me—I mean, I know a lot. I know stuff that they don't know I know. (laughs) Of course I know. I know what this one's doing because they're congregants. I help out of Christianity, and in turn, when they do tshuva, they say, okay, let me explain to you what's going on. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I mean, I have a ton of— 
libraries of that. We obviously, this triage, you obviously want to go, well, who is the person that immediately poses the greatest threat? Who is the person who is really infiltrating? Who is the person who is openly acting messianic? So you have people, loads of messianics here in Israel that don't hide the fact that they're messianic. Now, they dress with a kippah and they dress, you know, you wouldn't, in a million years on the streets, wouldn't know. They look like just someone who who lives in the gush, just typical person, but they're messianic. I mean, if you ask them, they'll tell them that. And there's a whole bunch of these guys running first fruits of Zion. If you saw them or their wives, you would never know it in a million years. Never. They look like anyone else. So there's nothing you can really do. Just be aware. And I want him to say this and it sound crazy. Ward Simpson, Bishop Plummer, who came here with the intent of converting black Jews to Christianity, Ethiopian Jews, 150,000 of them, Michael L. Cohen, and Buckles, and Vahula, and many others. But these characters in particular have done more to save Claudia from missionaries than I've done in 40 years. What do you mean? Yes, because they have raised awareness. That means that in reality, our enemies, Homon, did more for Jewish identity than the Nevi'im combined. As it turns out, our enemies, as it turns out, you know, it's a crazy thing that when this war we had with Hamas was going on, I saw that as the rockets were coming in during those 11 days, people behave differently to each other, mm-hmm. more gentler, more kindly. I see police officers in Israel smiling at people instead of... <laughs> it, it, it had an effect on us. where It unites us. As it turns out, our opponents do a lot to strengthen Yisrael and unites us. These missionaries who came, Lahashim and who came here to destroy the Jewish faith. They don't want to physically hurt us. These are people who are pro-Israel because of their theology. They're not, they're not anti-Israel, but they want to destroy Judaism, our faith, have, by being exposed, have done more for uh, raising awareness, education, and preventing evangelism than I could ever have done on my own. I could go and speak in congregations all over Israel, but nothing could be as crazy and as wild as Ward Simpson saying on TV, thank God we got the YouTube, we got those videos, downloaded them and captured them, as much as him saying, I want to bring nine million Israelis to know about Yeshua. And that's everyone in case you're counting, Mm -hmm. men, women, and children. So these cases are very healthy for us, even though they're painful, but they're very important that this information is known. Education has to be the answer. And if education is not the answer to the problem, then everything I am doing and everything Benenu is doing is wrong. What we're doing is education. The more the Jewish community understands about the problem, the more successful we are at stopping those who seek to undermine our relationship with God. Rabbi Tovia Singer, this was very enlightening, and I really appreciate your taking time to speak with me today on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. Remember to go to jewishcoffeehouse.com for lots of great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chuchmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, Let My People Eat, and more. You can also find my blog, The Scott Conversation, there. Please also share this podcast so we can get the word out about the Orthodox conundrum to an even bigger audience. And please consider becoming a Jewish Coffeehouse patron by going to our Patreon page. The link is in the description of this podcast. You can get extra episodes, articles, merch, and more while also supporting our work. So please check it out today. 
I'm Scott Kahn, and this has been the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. <laughs>